Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Okay, welcome to Race and Democracy. Um, Today we have Dr. Brandon Jones, who is Associate Director for Student Learning and Development at University of Texas at Austin, and who's um, a lot of different things, a black scholar, a former student athlete, um, and somebody who's really interested in black uh, male achievement in in higher education institutions. My first question for you, Dr. Jones, is... um, you know, uh, what is your role here at the University of Texas in terms of trying to um, influence uh, black student development and achievement here on campus? Sure. So my role is associate director for student learning and development, and I work over in university housing and dining. And I know that that's a unique um, title for such an office that has traditionally just focused on residents and programming uh, as it relates to what uh, students do who live with us on campus. But my role specifically um pretty much emphasizes the student learning that happens outside of classes. And so what I get to do as a result of that is have an impact on almost 7,500 students a year who come and live with us on campus and help create these developmental learning opportunities uh, that are central to students' growth and development uh, in a, on a college campus. And, you know, I, I think that's great. And I think that when we think about a college campus, especially a predominantly white institution mm-hmm. like UT, I want you to talk about how how is it different being a black student coming mm-hmm. to this is a prestigious university. Right. This is a top of the line, top tier research one university with all the athletics and sports mm-hmm. and campus environment. What what is it like to be a black student on this campus? Sure. So at schools like the University of Texas, uh, large, predominantly white institutions, particularly in the South, um, it can be overwhelming. Uh, school like UT with over 50,000 students, uh, depending on the high school you come from, depending on your socioeconomic status or uh, the identities that you bring, that you bring, um, that experience can be from exciting and range all the way to overwhelming to the point where some students may underperform as a result of that. And so that's why it's important that our institutions uh, work to understand the experiences of students of color, particularly black students on college campuses, and make sure that those resources and structures are in place so that they can be successful when they get here because those things exist. And when you think about those structures that can help lead to success, what are some of those things? Is it is it connected to curriculum? Mm-hmm. Is it is it social and cultural development? Is it courageous conversations? What mm-hmm. are some of the things that you try to really institutionalize or mm-hmm. practice to to get black students um, sure. Access here. Yeah, sure. I think it's a combination of all of those things and then some because uh, we're not monolithic. You know, everybody's experience is different. And so one of the things that we try to make sure that we do is meet the students where they are. What worked for when I came to college in 2002 at Abilene Christian University is going to look a lot different 17 years later at the University of Texas. And so one of the things that we're doing is trying to meet our students where they are. You know, students will tell you that, you know, I won't check email, but anything that pops up in a group me, I, 
I'll show up to that because you reached me where I am. Uh, I've worked at college campuses where the students will tell us at orientation. Yeah, you know, send me an email. But then they get there and they're like, oh, just text me because I've had <laughs> students that I've emailed and then they've missed meetings. And That's then awesome. I send them a text and they're at my door. And I'm like, wow, this you have to meet them where they are. And so some of those structures are programs and activities that uh, facilitate that learning, but also meet the developmental needs of those students. And to do that, you have to understand who your students are, knowing their backgrounds and where they come from, and really being very strategic about what you're putting in front of them and when you put it in front of them. Well, that's a great uh, segue for my next question, because you talked about background and mm -hmm. knowing your students' background. Um, can you can you tell us about your background? Yeah. And you talked about Abilene Christian University, mm -hmm. and uh, you've done this wonderful TEDx talk oh, where you, you talk about um, really being a uh, uh, the son of an athlete, somebody mm -hmm. who, who was really interested in sports, especially mm -hmm. football, um, sort of had a star-crossed relationship with that, but really came on the other side of that very intensely concerned with um, black male athletes on mm -hmm. college campuses, um, certain bias, biases against them performing sure. well, and against us seeing them as holistic human beings, as mm -hmm. student athletes, and not as just some kind of fetishized, yeah. uh, racially marginalized yeah. creature yeah. who's just there to perform mm -hmm. for these predominantly white audiences and right. boosters. Right. Yeah. So my background, uh, I, I'm a native Texan. I grew up in a little town called Tyler, Texas, and people here at the university know all about Tyler, Texas. Uh, Earl Campbell, I'm um, from the exact same rural part of Tyler, Texas, where he grew up. I grew up being at church with his family every Sunday. So I know the entire Campbell family, uh, Aaron Ross, who played here, Tim Crowder, Matt Melton. Uh, a lot of players ca came through Tyler, Texas. And so um, UT has always been uh, uh, close in our family, especially in our neighborhood and high school. And so uh, I played at John Tyler, same high school as Earl Campbell uh, and a couple of those people I just mentioned. Um, on a good day, I was a second stringer, um, but I feel like uh, my athletic experience uh, was definitely unique in that I think my, co my coach, who's now being inducted into the Hall of Fame, uh, Alan Wilson, was definitely somebody who was patient with me. And I learned a lot of good lessons uh, through football. So I've always spoken well uh, of that sport. But I knew my time was limited just because of the kind of offense he ran. It was definitely a power system. And I've was 165 pounds at best at that time and then I ended up what position to, did you play I played, wide, I played wide receiver but in that offense it's more of a tight end in that kind of, and again looking at me I, there's no way I would ever be able to successfully play that position and so um, when when my senior year was up we didn't make the playoffs I reached out to a number of schools and my coach played at Abilene Christian uh, is on the Hall of Fame there and so I ended up uh, I reached out to Grambling and I reached out to Southern Arkansas and I reached out to Abilene Christian and Gremlin was like, yeah, you can walk on. And then after a couple of years, you may get a scholarship. Who knows? Uh, but I ended up going to ACU and took a walk on offer there. Um, I saw what it was like for the guys that I saw on TV, you know, in previous years. I'm like, man, these guys are state finalists. These guys were the best receivers in the state and they're not playing this first year. And I saw how they were getting treated. And here I was a walk on about to be somebody's tackling dummy for another couple of years as a red shirt. And so I decided that experience wasn't for me. And uh, but I kept up with the game. I love the game of football. Uh, most of my friends played football and basketball. But I also remembered the experience 
experience of growing up in East Texas and watching uh, guys uh, go away and then come back at the end of a semester or at the end of a season and hearing the rhetoric around it, uh, that always stood out to me. And that's what I focused on in my uh, TED talk was, you know, sometimes it's more than what we think that happened while a player may come home. Or, you know, the more I studied this during my dissertation, there's a lot more uh, nuances that we have to take into consideration. And, and when some, you, when you say when you say um, the rhetoric about players mm-hmm. who just came and left, is that negative rhetoric saying somehow they Mostly. didn't succeed? They yeah. were failures um, um, a lot of it was negative because uh, in my ted talk i talked about how growing up in east texas there would be guys that would go away for a semester and then at christmas they're home and they're still there a couple of months later and my father worked at train uh as a production clerk and that was one of the bigger jobs in east texas and so my dad said hey such and such that played on the team last year he's working in my unit right now what's going you know what's going on with that and so that would be a question or then oh i heard he got somebody pregnant and need to come home and work or i heard he couldn't cut it as a student and so they dropped him and let him go and so it was mostly negative and i just i never really bought into that mostly negative um narrative that kept getting perpetuated and so it was wasn't until years later that i started exploring the topic that i really became fascinated uh in what i was finding but more importantly telling a different story from a from an anti-deficit uh, framework because a lot of what's out there was so negative and it was about uh, previous athletes' experiences. Uh, Crystal Beeman had a study out calling it was called Used Goods and a lot of the players felt like they were um, thrown away when the season was done and I didn't like that and I wanted to see if there was something that was going right and if so, what was it and what can we do to replicate it? Well, I, I like um, that you're talking about used goods and really the exploitation of black male athletes mm-hmm, specifically, mm-hmm. thinking in a larger context about Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. and the NFL. There just was a settlement there. Mm-hmm. Um, I want us to talk about the exploitation of black male athletes, but then also really the exploitation and the the disappearance of black males mm. on predominantly white, especially prestigious campuses and really especially black American males. So Mm -hmm, not even mm -hmm. um, those who might be uh, black globally and are immigrants from the Caribbean um, or from West Africa, but really black Americans who have been here for generations and um, their lessening um, um, appearance Mm -hmm. uh, at universities like UT. So one, you know, you talked about in your Ted talk, um, the stereotypes and the way mm-hmm. in which black athletes often are really humiliated and mm-hmm. shamed and embarrassed. And, and um, there's a whole culture that tries to tell them that they're not intellectuals, that they are not readers, they're not literate. And really, when we think about somebody who's taught at these universities for over two decades, there are plenty of students of all racial backgrounds who mm-hmm. come in unprepared for college. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. just a product of the public school system. Right where I've met white students who can't read and write at the level that they are supposed to. Mm-hmm. I've met Latino black students. It's a universal problem. Right. But somehow we really focus on, especially when black males right. um, are underprepared. Mm-hmm. Right? So let's talk about why sure. is that and what, what are some of the, the, the ways we can 
we can both for athletes, but really for all black male students. Yeah, yeah. I think Juwanza Kanjufu talked about that and to be popular or smart. You know, when you go back and think about in the 90s, um, you know, when I, I, I was born in the 80s and then, and you know, grew up during the early hip hop era and all those different things. And I remember being in school with the Read to Achieve posters and the Milk Mustache commercials and all of that stuff. And you saw that stuff plastered all around the school. But rarely, if ever, did you see uh, a college professor that was a black man or rarely, if ever, did you see uh, on those career days that you see black men coming in uh, in various professions, especially in higher education uh, in those read to achieve posters? I never saw a black doctor. I never saw a Serena Williams uh, or anything like that. And so when you create environments like that, specifically in the inner cities and in the underserved rural schools, um, that does something psychologically when you don't see anything or anyone that looks like you. I somehow made it all the way through a doctorate and never had a black man as an instructor. And that always baffled me. And to this day, I continue to wonder how that happened. And I look at, you know, the school I went to the, you know, I went to a school where, you know, the A, I had an AP, the IB track, you had the minimum, then you had the, uh, the recommended, and then you had the distinguished. You had three different academic tracks here in the state of Texas. And I knew a lot of people that took that minimum. And in that minimum, that's a totally different curriculum compared to what I was getting in the AP and IB track, which prepared me to write college level papers and to stand in front of people and be comfortable uh, filling out college and admissions essays. So that was one of those fundamental struggles. And in those classes, there weren't a lot of athletes uh, because that minimum and that recommended plan made it easier to play a sport versus being on the distinguished track. Uh, I would argue would have done more college prep, but a lot of us weren't told that that was a good option for us. And, you know, this idea of role models, that was another question I had for you, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to now you've transitioned from being a student athlete, from being a graduate student to being really a scholar administrator. Mm-hmm. Um, why are there so few um, black male role models um, in higher education, especially mm-hmm. predominantly white institutions? Sure. I think that there are more black male role models in higher education than we think. The problem is many of them aren't as visible as uh, a Dr. Moore or someone such as yourself. Uh, and I think that uh, we don't we don't we don't put ourselves out there enough because I would argue there are quite a few, you know, like Dr. Sean Harper over at USC. Um, I think that uh, there are others, Chance Lewis. uh, Geez, there's a lot of people, especially women of color as well, out there that are doing great work. But the problem is, I think that we get relegated to certain roles. You know, we every school doesn't have a Rich Reddick. You know, every school doesn't have a Dr. Eric Tang or others on campus. And so uh, a lot of us get relegated to just working in multicultural affairs or get put in just serving the black students and not being uh, released to teach uh, classes like Dr. Moore's uh, Race in the Age of Trump or the Black Power Movement. And so I think that it's a lack of visibility. And a lot of the times what some institutions do is we get brought out when they're trying to recruit uh, more black students or when they're trying to uh, land this talented black faculty member, they bring us out. But in some cases, a lot of institutions just aren't promoting the work that these people are doing. And so that's why it may appear that there aren't many of us, but it's just that we don't get that visibility that a lot of our white uh, colleagues get as well. Now, when you think about visibility mm-hmm. on this campus, what has your experience been in terms of both visibility, but also just cl- campus climate uh, for, for you mm-hmm. as a professional here, but also 
in your interactions with graduate students, with undergraduate students? Sure. I think that here, um, by far, um, scholars of color are definitely visible. You know, I, I run into Dr. Reddick all the time uh, on campus. I listened to him on one of your previous podcast recordings. Uh, he was one of the reasons I wanted to come here because, uh, again, in 2009, I didn't get into the Ph.D. program because I wanted to study under Dr. Reddick. Um, so for me, I think that uh, our scholars of color are definitely more visible here. I hear students talking about Dr. Moore's class all the time. I was in Round Rock in a checkout lane at HEB and two of the cashiers were talking about something that they learned in Dr. Moore's class the other day. And I'm like, this, I'm all the way in Round Rock and this is happening. And so when I'm on campus, you know, and I'm active in the Black Faculty Staff Association and I get to see my colleagues, uh, I would argue that we're a lot more visible, but we could do better in terms of coming together. Because what because what I love about BFSA here is that we're excited when we get together, but it's like a family reunion. And I'm like, Yo, our buildings aren't that far, but we don't get a chance to come together enough and and welcome students in like we did today. We welcomed in the uh, Onyx, the new Onyx Honor Society to our meeting today and brought those students in. We need to do more of that. So in my experience, it's been pretty good here uh, in terms of uh, having that visibility and being able to interact with a Dr. Moore or a Dr. Peniel Joseph or Rich Reddick and others on campus. I really enjoyed that. Uh, but we could definitely do a, be a better job of making sure that all of our scholars of color and all of our faculty and staff of color who are doing great work on this campus uh, get recognized and be invisible as well. Now, I know students often complain of this. What do you think in terms of as faculty staff, this idea of being overburdened mm. um, uh, by not just symbolic representation, but really actual work? You know, sure. our black students complain that in classes, they are forced to become really sometimes ersatz, you know, cultural studies professors mm -hmm. and, and people who are speaking up, speaking out, yeah. who have to... Um, What's it like to be black? Yeah, yeah <laughs> you provide a narrative. But but then our, our faculty and staff can, can often privately complain that they are forced, and I know as faculty mm -hmm. um, for, for now over 20 years, to be um, counselors, to, 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 you know, not just write recommendations mm -hmm. and not just be mentor, but, but be even more than that, sure, you know, sure. um, and, and do that in multiple ways across campus uh, in ways that a lot of times you're not necessarily getting institutional support for mm -hmm. or even institutional recognition. But that burden falls on, oh, yeah. on black faculty and staff. Yeah. And it can lead to burnout as as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it, sometimes it can lead to uh, uh, a blocking of professional success, because when we think about Research One universities, mm -hmm. what they value above all else is usually research right. and books and publications or people who get huge grants Correct. and resources. Correct. So what, what do you... What, what, what do we think we can do about that? Yeah. Um, well, one, we need to make sure we're paying people for the work that they're doing, because a lot of the times what happens is, is that we've set people up. We set individuals of color up uh, for failure because we're giving them a job to be the the, the person who helps make sure that our black students are successful. You know, um, I've worked at several institutions that have put in, you know, a number of initiatives. But at the end of the day, what it boils down to is, can we support the people currently doing the work with the resources that they need? Because just because you're a professor of literature or whatever the case may be, doesn't mean that that's the only thing you're doing. In some cases, you are serving as the only voice at the table that speaks up for this group of students because you understand their experience. And so 
some cases, some people are staying here late and supporting our students uh, at programs. You know, Dr. Reddick serves as one of our faculty mentors in university housing and dining. And I've lost count of the number of times I've seen him in a residence hall at a program or reaching out to see if there's ways that he can support our students. And he's got two kids of his own. And so sometimes people are wearing more than one hat um, because if they don't, who will? And then in other cases, um, some people are just understaffed, underserved or under resourced mm -hmm. and can't uh, meet that demand. And so we come and we shoulder up and we make sure that the demand is met. And so I think that one thing we can do to solve that issue is let's pay people for the work that they're doing. And if we're noticing that someone is having to shoulder a load by themselves outside of the scope of their job description, then let's try to find ways to make sure that that person either gets the support or the compensation and resources they need to fulfill that task because otherwise that's a group of students that will suffer uh, if that person gets burnt out or that person's gone sick that day and we have a student in crisis all right i've got two final questions mm -hmm. one, one one is when you think about black male students and mm -hmm. obviously you you were one mm -hmm. um why in the post-civil rights era we're yeah, seeing the yeah. data on this that black male students, whether we're talking about um, elementary school, whether we're talking about high school, mm -hmm. whether we're talking about university and beyond, um, don't perform as well as, as their black female counterparts. Mm -hmm. And why are they not succeeding um, post-civil rights mm -hmm. in a way that we might have imagined they would have 50 years ago uh, after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, Civil yeah. Rights Act, you know, it seems like our educational systems, you know, suspend black boys at higher rates than anybody else. Mm -hmm. They expel black boys at higher rates. Yeah. Um, and again, this is juxtaposed against the real, real love and adoration for black male athletes. Mm -hmm. oh, uh, there, yeah. are, there are wonderful black female athletes. But when we think about financial drivers and mm -hmm. producers of just wealth. Yeah. Um, especially our black athletes in football and then mm -hmm. basketball. Mm -hmm. They produce billions of dollars sure, for the sure. NCAA oh, yeah. and for others. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nike and sports apparel. So why that that juxtaposition? So you got to think about you got to go back to what Crystal, how Crystal Beeman framed that socialization narrative. Black boys are socialized to play sports a lot, a lot earlier than our, our black girls. Uh, you know, J Johnny runs real fast at age four. So now all of a sudden we're thinking, man, we got to sign him up for football and, and to the detriment of academic achievement. And then when you look at the academic curriculum, what is that K-12 curriculum and how does it speak to uh, a a black boy from inner city Chicago. How does this curriculum speak to um, a kid in rural East Texas? You know, what, what is this curriculum saying? And a lot of the times our black boys don't see themselves in the curriculum. And I would argue the same thing for our black women, but also, um, Sports is more emphasized, especially in the state of Texas. You know, I, I'm from a state and a town where Friday nights, man, the light, everything is shutting down. We're following our high school teams and we're going wherever they're going. I've lived in two or three other states and nowhere I've ever lived uh, does this other than Texas. Like on Friday night in Tennessee, 
stuff's still open. The football, it's it's big, but it's not as big as here. I mean, you can buy your high school team's jersey in Walmart. So that te- if you grow up seeing that and you're seeing that guys are going off to college and the only college success stories you are seeing uh, is the basketball store or the football player, you tend to think that that's your only way out. And so for black boys, I would argue that the options uh, that get put out there have been limited. And that was one of the reasons why I chose the research that I, I pursued, because I know that there was more to it you know some of my participants want to be wanted to be doctors some of them wanted to be medical missionaries over in another country um it's not just being a rapper or an athlete but again the options that tend to get presented on career day to our boys is limited and if i'm not at school all the time because of suspensions or because we didn't we don't understand the things that we understand today about adhd or um autism and kids on the autism spectrum and different things like that um it, we just completely have misunderstood our black boys and we've tried to uh, change the, change them in so many ways. And so I, I would argue that those are some of the things that contribute to why we're not seeing the success with black males in higher education or education in general like we are with black women. My final question is really you in terms of your background. Mm-hmm. Um, how how has being a former student athlete really impacted your career mm-hmm. um, as a scholar, as an administrator, mm-hmm. um, as a thought leader. Yeah. What's been the impact? Yeah. So most people would, t- I mean, most athletes you talk to would be like, he wasn't no student athlete. Cause I mean, cause I, I cut it short after three days of being on campus. But um, for me, um, those that's where my friends were and my heart and my passion uh, for uh, the guys on the team has always remained. And so, I, I, re- I remember what it's like to watch them coming from practice into the cafeteria uh, late at night to go eat and then have to go watch film and then have to go lift weights. And then people are mad because they fell asleep in class. And it's like he got up at 3 a.m. to go work out. Of course, he's tired. He just got through practicing and showering and eating. But no one wants to take that into consideration. Um, and, I, you know, just listening to the narratives and the conversations around their success, I was like, no, nah, there's more to it than this. And so how it's impacted me is every school I've worked at I've somehow I've developed great relationships uh, with student athletes and uh, I did a presentation at the Black Student Athlete Summit this year where I, where I talk about it takes a village and for me I really believe in that especially as it relates to student athletes uh, of color uh, it, it does take a village and I know my role in the village and uh, if no one else is going to speak up it's going to I know I'm going to do it because I have an understanding uh, I have that capital uh, within that group to speak up and say hey I've noticed that uh, here's how we're treating these guys. You know, I worked at a campus before where they were singing happy birthday to the star player on Monday. He threw the game losing interception on Saturday and he had to come to class in a hoodie and sit in the back and couldn't talk to anybody because he's getting death threats on Twitter. That They're still humans. And so for me, how that's impacted my work is I tend to take a very relational approach to working with not just student athletes, but with students in general. Uh, I value people over processes. And so sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But Uh, that's definitely impacted how I go about doing what I do and more importantly how I go about engaging our students our faculty and our staff that's the final word Um, thank you so much Uh, Dr. Brandon Jones Associate Director for Student Learning and Development at UT uh, for this great conversation really on student development and black men and boys and athletics Mm -hmm. and exploitation and achievement thank you thank you appreciate it Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content 
on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.